Welcome to Rise, Healing from Childhood Sexual Abuse Podcast. I am your host, Jessica Heil, registered psychologist and DBT certified clinician. I am also a childhood sexual abuse survivor. In this podcast, I will offer information about childhood sexual abuse in order to provide you with knowledge on this difficult topic, as well as provide you with strategies and tips that you can access now in order to begin moving from surviving to thriving. Welcome back. In today's episode, I'm going to be speaking about the after effects of childhood sexual abuse. Last episode, I had spoken about some of my own experiences with regards to the after effects that I endured from childhood sexual abuse. Today, I want to broaden that topic more because I recognize that while some of you who have also experienced abuse may have the same symptoms that I had shared with you in the last episode, it's also possible that there's other symptoms that some of you may have experienced. And so I just want to do the best that I can to be able to speak to all the different symptoms that can be common when someone has experienced childhood sexual abuse. So that's what I'll be doing today. Uh, To start off though, so I want to offer a, a myth buster to begin this episode. And this is, I think, absolutely vital information. So put your listening ears on because this piece of information can be a bit life changing for people to know this. The research shows us that when it comes to childhood sexual abuse, the trauma, when people say that they've been traumatized by that experience, the research shows that the abuse is generally not traumatic at the time of the abuse. The trauma comes after the fact. I know it's shocking, right? It's all of us, I think, have been taught to think that when something as horrific as childhood abuse occurs, that it must be traumatizing in the moment. Uh, But that's not what the research says. And I do feel like it does survivors a disservice to not be really clear about this because a lot of survivors, where the shame comes from when they experience shame, which is one of those really big after effects, is that they think back on the event and they go, you know, but I didn't, I didn't say no, or I didn't stop it, or I wasn't coerced into the abuse. And that makes them feel like they were partly responsible for it, that they played a part in it. And my take home for you today is that that is just simply not the case. Because remember, children cannot consent, period. What ends up happening for a lot of survivors who've experienced abuse is that the perpetrator will groom them. They will take their time to get close to the child, to make sure that the child feels connected to them, uh, bonded with them, that the child just feels um, just cared for, and then the abuse will start to occur. So when it first starts happening, the child is very confused because this is a person that loves them and supports them and does these really nice things for them. And then all of a sudden, this person is also asking them or telling them to do this thing that they feel very uncomfortable with. They, you know, most children will have a sense that this is, it's weird. It's, you know, something's wrong about this. But most kids, just like I was, were 
are uh, innocent at the time that the abuse happens and they haven't had a lot of information and knowledge given to them about what sex is or sexual acts. So they're going into it a bit blind. They don't understand this concept of what is being asked of them. So because of that, it's not traumatizing in the moment because they don't actually understand what's going on. It's afterwards, as they get a bit older, when they suddenly realize what happened, that they start to put those pieces of the puzzle together and go, oh my gosh, I was abused. When that information becomes realized, that is generally when the child is going to have a traumatic reaction to the fact that the abuse occurred. But that traumatic reaction can be months and years after the fact. It's possible a child can go a really long time with really not understanding what happened at all until, again, they get a little bit older. So the after effects of childhood sexual abuse generally are occurring much later on once that child realizes what has actually occurred to them. When that awareness begins, that is when we're often going to see many of the different symptoms that come with childhood sexual abuse. And uh, so, so some of the symptoms that I mentioned last episode when I was talking about my own experience, the big ones for me were guilt and shame. That once I realized that this was wrong, that there was something going on here that was, uh, I was made to feel like I needed to keep a secret, that's when I started to have this really intense experience of guilt and shame. And for me personally, it was that that was traumatizing. I remember just the intensity of those emotions being absolutely debilitating. And I do believe that that is the piece that has caused me the most grief, I'll say, right, has uh, influenced the most symptoms was because of that guilt and shame that I experienced. Other emotions that are really prevalent with the after effects of abuse include loneliness, because the child feels like they can't tell anybody that they're alone in this experience. Nobody else understands. And then along with that, of course, they're going to start to isolate. It might be physical isolation, like they keep themselves away from other people. They avoid seeing friends or spending time with other family members. And sometimes it can just be this emotional isolation where maybe they are going through the motions of seeing other people but they're just really, really feeling disconnected all the time. So challenges with connecting with others, challenges with feeling seen and heard. I had shared with you last episode that one of my really pervasive symptoms was feeling invisible. I just felt like I just wasn't seen by other people. And when I think back on why that was, because objectively, was it that that I wasn't seen? Well, no, I mean, I still had, you know, my friends and my family and I was in gymnastics, so I had coaches and, you know, so I, I was around people. But now when I think back on it, I think that the reason why I felt so invisible was because this thing was happening to me at home and then I would just go about my regular day and people just didn't know, right? So I would go to school and this thing had happened, but, but nobody knew. Right. And I, I wonder sometimes I think back on it, did I have any symptoms in that moment? Like the next day after something had happened, would anyone have seen that there was something off and did anyone ever wonder? And I think the loneliness for me comes in 
the fact that nobody ever did ask. And so going to school or going to, um, at the time I was in gymnastics, going to gymnastics and, and knowing that this stuff was going on, but then nobody, it felt like nobody bothered to say, hey, what's wrong with you, right? Why are you acting different? But again, who knows if I actually was acting different. So um, invisibility for sure is a symptom I experienced and I know a lot of other survivors also experienced. Other ones include uh, d depression, feeling like you just have a really low mood all the time or often, um, which can come with a series of symptoms themselves. So things like apathy, like feeling like nothing really matters. It can be having uh, difficulty motivating yourself to do things. So getting out of bed or going to school if you're a child. Um, and obviously these after effects carry on into adulthood. So difficulty getting yourself to a job or maintaining a job or seeing your friends. There can be challenges with self-worth, like really just feeling like you are a worthy human, that you are enough for other people. There can be difficulties with certain behaviors like appetite, either an increased or decreased appetite, difficulty controlling your food, which obviously then that leads into a conversation about disordered eating because it can be, you know, there's a different spectrum when it comes to disordered eating. We're on the lower end of the spectrum. We're maybe just struggling with healthy eating or eating enough or overeating. And then once we get to the side of full out eating disorder, we can get into things like um, restricting your food completely, right? So missing a lot of meals or potentially things like binging, um, like eating a lot of food and purging, finding ways to make the food leave your body after you've eaten it. So all that can be part of depression and it also can be its own symptoms altogether. Uh, but they're correlated for sure with childhood sexual abuse. There's lots of studies that show that people who've been abused do have higher rates of depression and higher rates of eating disorders. People who've been abused also have higher rates of anxiety. Makes sense, right? So you're walking around having all these worry thoughts as a child, right? Of, you know, once you start realizing that there's this thing that happened to you, then worries about what would people think about you and what would people say if they knew and what if the secret got out, what would happen? I know for me, I walked around with the fear that my perpetrator put into my mind, which was if somebody was to find out that it would break up relationships within the family. You know, that was a big burden for me to be carrying around for many, many, many years. And then as an adult, that anxiety can also look like trying to manage what sometimes feels like a facade, walking around, you know, um, wanting to present as just a typical human being, and then yet on the inside, carrying this weight around all the time and wondering if people can tell that something is off. Uh, I, I know I've read, um, there's a book that is a wonderful read for this whole topic of the after effects of childhood sexual abuse. It's called The Trauma Myth, and it's by Susan A. Clancy. And she's actually the researcher who put together this information about what the after effects of childhood sexual abuse actually are. Uh, she's the one that really 
brought to light the fact that the abuse is not necessarily traumatic at the time, it's the after effects. So if anyone has not yet seen her work or read her work, please go ahead and, and read it. But I, I believe it's in that book. She quotes one of her um, the research participants having discussed what it's like to have the after effects of abuse. And the participant says something along the lines of, you know, afterwards as an adult, it's like you are just followed by this like dark shadow all the time, you know, this shadow that you're just not able to, uh, to leave behind. And so even though you're, you're trying to act typical and normal, right, with your, your friends, your peers and family and whatnot, as a, you know, an older child who has experienced this abuse, but also as an adult, it's like you've got this really dark shadow that you just cannot get rid of. And it's, it causes a lot of anxiety, wondering if people can notice that the shadow is there. So anxiety is common. There's a lot of survivors that end up experiencing panic attacks, which is like really, really intense anxiety that leads to kind of this um, culmination of symptoms that are uh, bodily related. So things like feeling like you can't breathe and your heart is going a million miles a minute, feels like it's pounding out of your chest. There could be sweating and dizziness and your, your limbs can go a little bit tingly. A lot of people with panic attacks feel like they're, they're about to die is the, the feeling that they get. So that's a panic attack. Um, what else? So substance use, we talked a little bit about that last episode. It's quite common. It's very correlated that people who end up having substance use concerns frequently have a history of some sort of childhood abuse. So really, really close correlation there. And um, it's, it's kind of sad too, knowing some of the statistics of people who are struggling with severe addiction. When you see that so many of them have this history of ACEs is what we'd call it. So adverse childhood experiences is um, a term that's often used. Um, ACEs are, it's a list of 10 experiences that people could have during childhood. And they're, well, they're adverse experiences. They are exactly as the title sounds like. They're, they're things that are just really, really hard to experience. And what we know is that the more of these ACEs you have in childhood, then the more likelihood you have of growing up to have different concerns, including psychological concerns and addiction concerns and uh, physical concerns as well. So physical health gets impacted as well. Um, and so sexual abuse is one of those ACEs that people uh, can experience. Um, okay, so trigger warning here, I'm going to talk a little bit now about some really, I mean, they're all debilitating behaviors and experiences, but some um, scary ones here. So people who experience abuse, it is not uncommon for them to also experience at some time in their life, suicidal urges and potentially actions, so a suicide attempt, and also self-harm. And if that is you listening, then I am going to strongly suggest that after this episode, you go take a look at my website and 
have a just have a have a look through some of the resources. There's a link to a DBT certification page, which is um, a directory with different DBT certified clinicians worldwide. DBT or dialectical behavior therapy. It's the therapy that I predominantly use in my private practice with my clients. And it is the therapy that is endorsed for treating things like suicidal behaviors and self-harming behaviors. So you can find more on DBT on my website. And there's also a link that you can use to click to go straight to my private practice website, which is Inner Solutions www.innersolutions.ca and you'll you'll see just a ton that's on dbt there because that is kind of the big thing that we do there at the, that clinic um so just know that if you experience those urges and those actions then um you're not alone and there's lots of people that also experience that unfortunately but there there really is a lot of treatment that is very very hopeful and then other symptoms hypersexuality and hyposexuality and I find this one really interesting that it can that people can experience things on, on both sides of the spectrums when it comes to the after effects of abuse. For some people, the they find that after childhood abuse, they end up being more sexual than the norm, than most people, meaning that they're engaging in just more frequent sexual practices, or it could be risky sexual practices. And how I would define risky is, is things that there's a consequence for. So it could be that they're engaging in types of activities that lead them to be in harm's way. Perhaps they're finding that they end up being um, just there's a correlation with, um, with sexual violence and hypersexuality and um, also things like STIs and whatnot. So just not necessarily taking the protective measures uh, that uh, one could when it comes to um, being sexual. And as I say that, just please know that I am not in any means um, or by any means trying to, to create any judgments there. Because as I shared with you last episode, um, in my younger years, I would actually say I was probably more on, on that side of the spectrum. I had shared that this was something that I had struggled with in terms of thinking that my worth was tied into men. So um, I am with you. And that's just what the, the research suggests is that sometimes when there's an experience of that hypersexuality, it, it can come with some of those consequences. And then the other side of the hypo of the, uh, the spectrum, sorry, is hyposexuality. Some people who've been abused find themselves not engaging in any sexual practices, that they find that sex is just, it, it turns them off, they, they feel quite disgusted by it, or they just have no libido whatsoever, and they end up avoiding having any type of sexual relationships. And then, of course, there's people in between, right? So it's not like there's a one-size-fits-all. It can look like any of um, that spectrum. And so just, just know that anything is, um, is okay, right, is normal for having gone through these types of experiences. Okay, and then dissociation is another symptom that can occur in the after effects of sexual abuse, and actually during sexual abuse as well. This is one where uh, sometimes we'll see this symptom show up during the abuse. Dissociation is 
actually a survival response that the body experiences when it is in a situation that it finds threatening and it doesn't see a way of being able to escape. Okay, so if you are feeling stuck, I'll say, right, in a situation where you're being abused, then the brain can decide to just kind of go offline and it leaves the body to do what the body is doing. But then the, the brain just doesn't have to be involved in the same way. It makes you check out so that you're just not experiencing that abuse in the way that you um, would if you're being quite mindful. Sometimes people who've been abused will say that they have out-of-body experiences it's quite common to feel like during the abuse you were not in your body that you're actually maybe floating on the ceiling kind of like on the outside looking in and uh can sometimes feel like you're just very numb that you're, you're just you're just not there and so that that experience is pretty common during abuse but it's also common to develop it after the fact so it can happen in both ways and then finally, the last after effect I'll speak to today is something that we call the fawn response. So actually, let me take a step back. So I, I talked about dissociation. That is what we refer to as the freeze response. So when we are in threatening situations, the body tends to do one of four things. It will either fight, freeze, flee, or fawn. Okay, so four different responses the body can have when there's a threat. Fighting would be, as it sounds, right, it's like fighting back, which is extremely uncommon with childhood sexual abuse. That does not happen very often. And so if you did not fight back, just know that that actually makes sense. Because if you think about it from that survival perspective, you were a child with somebody who was very likely a lot bigger than you, had you tried to fight back, that probably would not have ended well for you. So your body knew what to do. It knew what to do to be able to protect you and it decided to not fight. Okay, then the fleeing response, this would be like running away or avoiding. Again, hard to do when you're being abused and you're so young and little because it's just not, what would have been realistic right to just run out of that room because the abuser would be able to go and and um and catch up with you very quickly and again you know who knows what would have happened if you tried to run out of wherever you were the first time it happened right and and then that abuser is probably going to be panicking and who knows what they'd be capable of doing so that's your body protecting you the fact that if it didn't flee i think that makes sense then freeze is that dissociation response. It's like the body knows we can't get away and it's just going to go through the motions in order to protect us from getting hurt. And then the last response is the fawn response. And the fawn response is a really interesting one. This is when we have formed an attachment bond with a person. So they're probably going to be some sort of caregiver or somebody who plays a vital role when we're children in terms of being able to take care of us and even potentially protect us. And yet that person can sometimes turn on us. So it's like sometimes they're there for us, but then sometimes they're not. So this the fawn response is actually really common with people who've been physically abused. It's like, you know, the, the person who abuses them physically is you know, nice sometimes, but then all of a sudden there's this violence. 
So that, um, if you think about fawns, like in the wild, like the fawn is, is, you know, kind of this, this creature that has to follow around its, its mother in order to make sure that it's going to be safe, right? Because mom is going to protect the fawn from predators or make sure that the fawn has food. And so it needs to stay with mom or dad, you know, whoever, um, caregiver in order to make sure that it survives. So we as humans do the same thing. We, as a young person, will stay close to whoever the caregiver is in order to make sure that we survive. So if we have a caregiver that is sometimes kind and then sometimes turns on us, what we're going to end up doing is we don't want to, we can't as children blame the caregiver for being unpredictable because for our poor little child mind, the idea that the caregiver could possibly be somebody who is unpredictable is just unimaginable because if our caregiver is unpredictable, then what does that mean about the world? It means that the world is also unpredictable. And we just can't fathom thinking that as young people because then that means that the world is just a terrifying place. So instead, we assume that there's something wrong with us and that it must be us that's creating this unpredictability in the caregiver. And so instead, what we try to do is we do everything we can to stay on the caregiver's good side. We will be really kind back, we'll be sweet, we might try to do good deeds for the caregiver. We'll do anything we can so that they like us because we think as a child that if we do likable things, then that's going to be the thing that's going to reduce that unpredictability. We think that when they're being unpredictable, it's because we've done something bad or we are bad. There's something wrong with us. So very common in physical abuse, but it is also still common in sexual abuse. And oftentimes we will develop a fawn response when we have been abused by a caregiver. So that's a lot of information for you today. I am going to put some links into the show notes with just some resources that are related to the information that I've presented you. And as usual, I just hope that everybody, after this conversation, you go and you take care of yourselves. You do something kind for yourself and soothing to make sure that you are doing as okay as possible. I know that this is really hard information to hear. And so just make sure that you're offering yourself the care that you deserve. And thanks for listening. I will catch you next episode. Thank you for listening. If you found today's episode helpful, please go ahead and leave me a review. And you can also subscribe to the show so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. For more information about me, you can check out my website, risefromcsa.ca, where you will find resources on childhood sexual abuse, as well as a link to Inner Solutions, which is my private practice located in Calgary, Alberta.